You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, Karen Manja. That name always makes me hungry. Because I'm half Italian. Oh, heard. <laughs> Karen is a Wall Street Journal best-selling author and one of the most sought-after thought leaders in the world, sharing her thought leadership with over 10,000 organizations during the course of her career. That's the number Malcolm Gladwell would be proud of, Karen. <laughs> She's the author of four books, including Success From Anywhere, Create Your Own Future of Work From the Inside Out, Working From Home, Making the New Normal Work For You. Listen up, how to tune in to customers and turn down the noise. There's some noise back here. Yes. And the one that started it all, success with less. She joins me today to talk about a career and so much more. Welcome to the program, Karen. Thanks so much. I really think about when I hear that list of books that I have nothing left to say worth writing down at this point. I mean, like I literally left it all instead of on the field. I guess it was on the paper. Oh, I guess this conversation's over. We can all <laughs> uh, Karen, I'm curious, Where? because we're at a research conference. Where does your story as a researcher begin? When I think about it now, I discovered my interest as a researcher and figured out this career path in college. I was a research assistant for a professor and he had a contract with the Radio and Television News Directors Association. And each year he would survey thousands of, not surprisingly, radio and television news directors and look for trends, and he would publish articles in their membership magazine. My job was to follow up with the survey non-respondents over the phone and offer to mail them another survey or to conduct the survey over the phone. And he was gracious enough to allow me once a year to co-write an article with him, and we would write about trends in internships, which was a very hot topic and a source of workforce pipeline. Well, that experience was so enjoyable, and I love that aspect of discovery and getting curious and figuring out what something means so much that I set my sights on a job post-university at Nielsen Ratings. Unfortunately, I had more research skills to develop because I failed to look up the fact that they were headquartered in Iowa, and in my early 20s, that did not sound like an exciting place to go. Not a hotbed for the young 20s. Not a hotbed for the young 20s. So I parking lot at that, went in a different direction, 
And it took years into my career when I had the opportunity to step into leading customer experience globally and voice of the customer for the technology company Cisco that I realized I kind of got my Nielsen ratings job in a sense. That's what I was doing for Cisco. So it was a dream deferred and then realized. I think very few people I know in our industry set out to become market researchers. They kind of fall into it. My story was somewhat similar in that I was doing uh, undergraduate research in psychology and my whole, my whole plan was to go get a PhD in clinical psych. And then somebody said, you know, why don't you take a year off before you spend the next eight years of your life doing that? And I said, okay, I got a job working in advertising and I saw my first focus group and I said, you know what, that looks like group therapy but nobody's crying. <laughs> you know, at plus. I can use the same skills and then I, I kind of got, that's how I got into the qualitative research business anyway. Isn't it fascinating to study how people think and how they make decisions and explore what might be possible? I, I find people's stories and the way they think endlessly entertaining, which is probably what drew me to this kind of a profession as well. You have to have a certain amount of curiosity. I mean, there's a lot of technical skill you need to, to be in market research, but the one thing that I said, I think both marketers, consumer marketers, researchers, and authors, one thing that ties us all together is this curiosity. Like, it's our superpower. Yes, and also storytelling. I mean, once we gather these rich insights, Part of our role after we get creative and curious is then to capture that story in a way that it's so compelling for someone else to take action based on what we're hearing and discovering. And that's where I think there's a big opportunity for researchers because I think we're good at collecting data, we're good at collecting observations and insights, but the storytelling and how we package them up sometimes can be a challenge. What's, what's your approach to storytelling? I think about the phenomenon that you just described as something I call a bug under a bowl. And I'll never forget the time when I came home to discover a very odd surprise from one of my roommates when I was getting my master's degree. I opened the door to our apartment. I think we all had this first apartment, right? The very questionable carpet, the stains everywhere, you know, the, the handed down furniture from family and friends, the light fixture you found on the side of the road, all the good things. And you definitely don't want to do like one of those law and order black light things in an apartment exactly. like that. Exactly, and the spool. I mean, lots of people had the spool, right? Doubles as a coffee table, <laughs> all the good stuff. And when I opened the door, our repurposed lamp was on this very dim setting and I happened to notice all over our questionable carpet, shag variety of course, were these upside down bowls. And when I got closer to them and looked inside, something jumped back at me. Oh. And I was like, oh my word. And as I went from bowl to bowl, I realized that my roommate's strategy for pest control in our apartment while I was away was to find bowls and turn them upside down on top of the bugs as opposed to addressing the situation. The next day I asked her, what in the world were you thinking? And she said, I, I, I don't like bugs. I didn't want to deal with it. So I figured you'd deal with it when you got back. And I thought, isn't that an interesting analogy for what we do so often with our customer research and with challenges we're trying to solve for customers? We become experts at like isolating the problem and then we all stand around admiring it like a bug under a bowl. The challenge is observation isn't action. And when I think about taking what we do and turning it into compelling stories, I like to start with the so what or to what end. 
right? By taking action, by bringing this story forward on behalf of a customer or a customer segment, to what end are we hoping this serves some kind of purpose? Because people need to be al aligned around why are we going to do something about this? What's the compelling reason that I would invest in this versus any other number of portfolio investment opportunities? Well, this is a good segue. I want to I go into discovery um, because you work in a very tech forward organization. You have a big tech background and I've done a lot of product development research myself, a lot of user experience research. And I'm curious, what's your take on discovery and how it relates to market research? Because I think they're similar, but there's also some key differences. What I think about the nuance between discovery and market research is about mindset. Discovery says we're still in the mode of curiosity about are we solving the right problem through the eyes of our ideal customers? Have we defined the customer and the buyer in the best way? What else might be possible? I think about market research as we're already committed to a concept and now I'm kind of going to A-B test, would you buy or not? You know, do you like the packaging A or packaging B? Right, we're introducing something that we believe is more fixed because we've already committed to a path. Discovery I think about as more of a wide open field of opportunity where we're focused on opening up our thought process. By the time we get to market research, we're trying to narrow it down. Yeah, there's, there's a, a phrase or a mantra in discovery that I really like, which is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Yes, that's a great one. I'm going to borrow that from you, and I will credit you. I promise. Oh, you know what? I, I I have to credit the Silicon Valley Product Group, so I can't I can't take any credit for that. But um, but to me, it's it's like you know I think I like the distinction with market research. We, are, we already have an idea or a concept that's pretty fleshed out. With discovery, it's like we can be really scrappy. Like we can bring paper prototypes to somebody and be like, hey, what do you think of this? This is work I was doing last week mm -hmm. for, a, for a big bank. And I'm like, hey, what, what do you think of this? Does it work, does it not work? We didn't spend like three weeks putting a concept together. Now I was working with a designer and we were just sketching stuff out basically on the back of a napkin or the, the, the tech version of the back of a napkin. Yes. And you know, we're able to, to get feedback very quickly and very scrappily and then see that iterate. And then maybe in a few months, we're ready for market research. But now it's like, okay, we need to just get, this is the Italian in me coming out, by the way, and I keep hitting this microphone. <laughs> but, um, but then, you know, it, it's just like, we, we need to be faster and scrappier earlier on. Speaking of faster and scrappy, this is me with the microphone. Um, but your take. I think about what you're saying as discovery is what could we do with five people, five dollars in five minutes, and market research is what are the five phases, the 50 people, and you know it's the $500,000 or the $5 million, depending on the size of your organization. It's the difference between piloting and moving quickly versus we're committed and really building out a portfolio roadmap and a plan. All right, well I think we've talked enough about market research. I want to talk about books because I'm a book guy and uh, I'm a writer, you're a writer. I am curious, where does your story as an author begin? My story as an author begins in childhood when my grandparents would host their grandchildren for a week every summer without our parents. Imagine the joy. 
You can stay up as late as you want. You can eat whatever you want. I mean, the world is literally your oyster or your snack cracker or your cookies or your popsicles, whatever suits your fancy. And I would spend the week writing a play and casting my cousins in it and running rehearsals for the show for when our parents came to pick us up over the weekend. Now, being the eldest, that meant I was writing, directing, producing, and also partially starring in the show, right? You had to wear many hats. Maybe I was an early entrepreneur. What I found was I loved that process of telling a story. And the older I got, the more I got interested in other people's stories, which was what drew me to sales in a lot of ways. And then ultimately to a role researching and writing is just that love of storytelling. And probably like many of the people listening, I love to listen to and learn from great storytellers. There's something so captivating about someone that can draw you into a plot or an unlikely discovery or share a story and then do a turn of phrase and bring you into a really relatable scenario to teach you something. That got me excited and what I discovered at the core of doing all of the customer experience and you know customer engagement work I've done is storytelling is what moves our organizations to action. It's how we become the keepers of customer culture. It's truly how we put the customer at the center of everything we do. And when there was an opportunity to start writing these stories down, I never thought about writing a book. That was never an aspiration until I gave a keynote speech for an executive conference and someone in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, you should write a book about that. And then she guided me through the process of how to do that and trademarking my concept. And I say that that first book chose me and I'm glad it did. It wasn't in my purview before. Let's talk about that first book because I know there's a very personal story behind it. So can you share your personal story behind that first book? It might surprise you to discover sitting here today in person and looking at me now that there was a time in my life where my health got really off track. And the core of the story that I share in the book is my own major medical setback to comeback story and what it taught me and hopefully others about success. You know, in my case, I was in my early 30s working in a tech company, leading a sales team. If you looked at my LinkedIn, everything looked awesome. You know, the up and to the right you get coached on and the LinkedIn of my life wasn't so great. And strange things started happening. I started gaining weight, I started getting forgetful, and I explained it all away. Oh, I'm working a lot, I'm missing workouts, I'm eating more at the customer dinners. And one day I had an impossible to ignore moment, which was picking up my phone to call my brother and realizing I couldn't remember his name. I had to use the process of elimination to find his last name and deduce based on that, his first name. It was impossible to ignore an attention getting moment. And when I started to seek attention for this, it became a snowball effect until three and a half years in to major medical with no diagnosis, uh, my hair fell out, my skin turned gray, my eyes changed color, and the freaky thing is I never missed a day of work. And it sounds horrible when I say that. If a friend was saying to you, I am struggling and I'm just gonna keep on working, you would say, I think you need to take a break and get this sorted out, right? And I use that story as an example because ultimately what I was diagnosed with was pesticide poisoning. And I think it's such an interesting parable for success because in my case, yes, I had actual poison pulsing through my body, but the reason it went so far was because I was carrying a toxic set of beliefs about what success was and what I needed to do to get it. 
And what I've discovered after interviewing thousands of people around the world now about redefining success is I wasn't the only person carrying this really off definition of success that cost me my health. So, I mean, you're going through this, like you're living an episode of Mystery Diagnosis, yes. right? Or the monsters inside me. I, I watch all these crazy shows. Um, and, but you're working through the whole thing. Because why? Like, what, what was driving you to, to put your health off to the side? What was that core belief you held? It's do more to have more to be more, and that will sum up to success. And I thought what I observed in successful people was that they always said yes and took on more and made it look easy, effortless, and agreeable and presented results, and then they were rewarded with more, right? More access, more money, more promotions, more titles. And it was the only formula for success I ever knew and I thought I observed in other people as well. And what that definition was missing is that people who are successful at their work and their life are very clear about their priorities and they align their best energy and effort to what matters most. Yeah, and the other lesson I think there is that we have to learn to be our own best friend. Because if, you gave that great example, if, if you saw your brother, for example, whose name you couldn't remember, going through the same thing, you would probably give him advice that you didn't take yourself. That is so true. And what happens in that moment is we start to tell ourselves these stories. And I hear these stories inside of even toxic cultures, inside of organizations. We start telling ourselves these stories of progressive tolerance. It's not that bad. The grass isn't always greener. I'm sure it will get better. An object in motion stays in motion. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Have you ever said any of these things? Oh, sure. Right, we repeat these and we do this inside of teams and we start to normalize busy. And that unless success is taking some kind of toll on us, right, unless we suffer for it, we're not really successful, unless we're running at a chaotic pace and sacrificing all the time, and nothing could be further from the truth. And that's what Major Medical brought into crystal clear focus for me. So for the aspiring authors out there, and I'm sure there are a few, there, there's one big lesson that I'd love for you to talk about, which is the, the act of writing a book like this, right, where you're going into a very personal story, requires a tremendous amount of vulnerability. And I know that's a word that, that might be overused, and I am not Glennon Doyle, but um, I'm just curious, what, what's your take on writing and vulnerability? Is it, you know, I, I, we talked about curiosity before, is vulnerability as important as curiosity, or what's the relationship in writing? Vulnerability is critically important, whether it's our own story or a customer story. We all gravitate toward what is authentic, real, and relatable, and we can all tell the difference. That's why some of these customer stories, you know, when you play the customer call center recording to a group and people hear what your customers truly experience, it's so eye-opening and moving because you can't deny it. It's vulnerable, authentic, and real, and we can feel the difference. And human stories are the same way. And what I wanted to do was to strike a balance between a memoir, it's not designed to be a memoir, and being able to share a story that says to people, I see you, I hear you. I've paid a big price for what I thought success was too, and I've given myself permission to reinvent. Let's go on this journey together. And so there is a, a fine line there because part of the purpose of sharing this story is for other people to see themselves in the struggle as well and to get some help and hope to move forward and ultimately to 
feel the permission to choose differently and to begin again? Well, I think that's a great segue into your latest book, which is Success From Anywhere, Create Your Own Future of Work From the Inside Out. What can you share with us about this book? I thought about this book not just in terms of something you can read, I thought about it as a way to enable a different kind of conversation about work. And so for the first time, this book includes a playbook with 10 games. Individuals, teams, and organizations can play together to change the conversation and to challenge some of the myths and misconceptions we hold about work. What it is, where it happens, when it happens, the purpose behind it, and a variety of other aspects of re-examining and reconnecting with our values. And I thought about this book as coming at a moment in time where we were all stepping back and asking ourselves a critically important question, which is what matters, and wanting to bring more of our lives into our work and not just our work into our lives. And the intention behind the book is really to think about where does change come from? I mean, maybe like you, regardless whether I'm leading a team or a cultural change or a customer experience initiative, I like to picture the grand gesture, right? We're gonna change the whole culture of the organization. And what I realized when I started writing this book is really success happens and culture change happens one person at a time, one choice at a time, and adjusting your culture is as soon as the next choice you make as an individual that cascades you know, out further into your organization. You know, I imagine uh, just knowing the publishing cycle and how long it takes to write and get published, was a chunk of this written during something called the pandemic? <laughs> I had two books come out during 2020, and speaking of time to market, working from home, came about very organically. I wrote that book in less than 30 days. And from conversation with my editor to holding it in my hands was 87 days. So that book came out in August, 2020. Listen Up came out in October, 2020. And then I looked ahead because I thought like many people, well, we'll just either go back to the office or we'll all be at home. And when it was evident, really how we think about work was changing. December, 2021 was success from anywhere to think about it's not what we knew before, and it's not what we've been living with, so what could it be now? Yeah, and this is an interesting time to have this conversation because, you know, in the height of the pandemic, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview a lot of people during that period of time, and there were so many silver linings, right? We're all, we're on a, many of us were in a dark place, like especially the extroverts, you know, and <laughs> you know, we, were, we were a little like, huh, but, People were saying you know, it's it's time with family. You know, they're looking at I would never have had this time before, and they got to really reassess what it meant to have a career, what it meant to be a parent, what it meant to be a husband or spouse or whatever. And now we're at this time where there's a push, even in tech, to get people back into the office. And you know, if it's not full time, it's part time. And you know, I'm just curious about your, your take on that. Is, is that the right thing to, to be focusing on right now is getting people back together in an office or is you know, giving people choice of where they can be successful more important? <laughs> it's almost like our return to office or thinking about work has gone from what we were talking about earlier. We were in a discovery phase and we somehow entered a market research type phase. We're very committed in a lot of cases to a specific solution and now we're just experimenting with how it goes when we force people back. All humans prefer meaning to mandates. And we want to know the why, the meaning behind something. 
And a principle when I think about this whole debate about the office and mandating it, and people are rising up and saying, wait a minute, I delivered amazing results from home. Why do I suddenly need to be in this mysterious office now? And a number of hiring managers I work with on a regular basis talk about, hey, we hired excellent talent in a city where we don't have an office because that was going to be our new model. Are we going to sacrifice a top performer? I mean, is the mandate that important to us? What I think about is a principle that I discovered from interviewing Kate Clifford, who is the chief HR officer of Accenture North America. And they use a litmus test question that I really like. And it is, what would it take to earn a commute? Meaning, what would it take to create so much upside for coming into the office that you as the person making that commute would believe it was worthwhile? I like the mindset shift of that because it says, how do we be more intentional about explaining the meaning behind this and planning this time that we're together in a purposeful, intentional way? Yeah, and the answer has to be more than free snacks, by the way. <laughs> I think it, it yeah. has to be more than, you know, free, uh, maybe free liquid death. Yeah. Maybe that's the ante right there. It could be. A little free liquid death. Um, I want to ask some fun questions here. Yes. Uh, because I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more. And one of the ones I use frequently in qualitative research as I'm going around the table doing some introductions is what was your favorite TV show as a kid? Oh, my favorite TV show as a kid was The Facts of Life. Oh, my gosh. Now, there were two <laughs> versions of The Facts of Life, right? There was the original, like, I think, pilot few episodes where there was, like, eight or so girls. And then they narrowed it down at some point yes. to Mrs. Garrett, Tootie, Natalie, Blair. Blair, and Joe. Yes. Yes, I was a fan in that era. Yes. Yes, Mrs. Garrett. I mean, I just I felt like one of the girls there. Mrs. Garrett... I mean, after the Facts of Life had, after the girls graduated high school, they didn't know what to do. Eastman High, if I'm remembering, <laughs> in Peekskill, New York. Gosh, I know too much about TV. <laughs> she opened a store. Yes. Do you remember the name of the store? I do not. Does anyone remember Does the name of the store? Remember? Everyone's shaking their head. Edna's Edibles. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought in today's day and age, that would mean something totally different. That would different. mean something totally different in like Denver, Colorado, right? Edna's yes. Edibles. Somebody should trademark that. Absolutely, yes. And what a reminder that words matter and context matters, right? Absolutely. Do you have a favorite episode of Facts of Life that stands out to you? Oh, it's probably when Mrs. Garrett is comforting Blair because her very snooty parents have come to visit and she's realizing she's not kind of one of them anymore, but she's still trying to blend in. You know, always the tender moments there. Tender moments. I remember uh, a young George Clooney on The Facts of Life. Yes, wasn't he a delivery guy? I think he was something like that. Yes. And But there was an episode where, um, it, it's funny, we talk about it in his edibles, it was a marijuana episode <laughs> where somebody, like one of the girls got a hold of something and Natalie and Tootie went to the record store and they bought bongs or water pipes as they're sometimes called. And to me, that was, uh, that, for some reason, that always stuck out in my head. That's funny. That's, this means now someone's going to write some kind of review and say that that show was actually about something different than it was. You know, who knows? It could have been. And everyone's here probably listening like, why are they talking about the facts of life so much? <laughs> Any other shows come to mind from your childhood that you really appreciated? Well, of course, you know, who wasn't a big fan of Family Ties? Oh. That was another one. Of course, our good, you know, Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton. 
I love that show because you had such a dynamic, right? You had the hippie parents with the like very conservative son and that really like turned like culture on its head because it was always the conservative parents and like the hippie or countercultural kids. But the fact that they made the choice to make him you know, the, uh, the conservative, I thought it was tremendous. Yes, and just even what he wore, you know, to school, his suit and, yeah. you know, the sweater vest comes to mind. Yeah, totally, totally. Actually, my, my niece, who lives here in Austin, her name is Mallory, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure they named her after uh, Justine Bateman's character on yes. that tremendous show. Uh, how about this one? Um, in terms of writing and being a writer and now four books, I understand there's a, a fifth. That is correct, coming uh, out this year. Very close. Um, what have you learned about yourself going through the writing and publishing process? Any, any big insights into yourself? Yes, what I have discovered is that no matter how much you write, the process of writing and storytelling never really gets faster. Ideally, you get better at it, it doesn't get faster. I mean, you can't shortcut the process. I know, 87 days yes. from, you know, talking about it to having it in your hand is pretty damn fast. Yes, and now people joke with me, couldn't you just have ChatGPT write the book for you and you could be done even faster? And maybe I could, maybe that's my new idea. And something else that I have discovered that I think is a really important lesson that I take into how I lead and into the way that I do work is, Sometimes I fall in love with the things that I write. You know, I think they're clever or funny or insightful, and then someone else who's an editor reads it and they do not share my love or passion or appreciate that I stayed up late to write that. And so it gets cut and lost, and I think, that's so sad. I mean, it was really good. The reality is, when you write something, just like when you create something or lead a team or have a winning sales year or whatever that looks like for you is, we all have to let go of that playbook that we had for success and be willing to reinvent. And going back to what we were talking about with discovery, really the question is, how could this be better? Like what else could this be? And oftentimes we get to a much better outcome. And I think about that lesson of adaptability and resilience and being to work with what shows up as opposed to what you want something to be that is very useful. It comes out of my writing into, you know, my day-to-day -day job. You know, it really does, when you're a writer, you have to kill your darlings sometimes. Yes. You know, you hand in 100,000 words and you get 70,000 back from an editor. Uh -huh. And you have to trust that that editor knows what she's doing. Yes. Because they know marketability, they know what's going to work, and it's like falling in love with the problem, not the solution, right? Writing can be the solution, but sometimes you have to make hard choices. Yes, and writing, I think, is also a great tool to refine your point of view, right? What is your point of view about the future of customer experience or the future of work or whatever your topic might be? It forces you to crystallize your own point of view and provide some supporting evidence. And so I find it's helpful for working out a thought process as well. Yeah, it's, it's very cathartic. It's very cathartic. And uh, last one up here would be, uh, I like to call this one Dear Younger Me. If you could write a letter to your younger self, what would you tell the younger Karen? Based on everything you know right now, what would you tell your younger self? Maybe it's that Karen who's writing plays at her grandparents' <laughs> house, you know, bullying her, her cousins and, and siblings into performing in them. Have more fun and be fully present in the moment that you're in. I mean, I really think about how much of my life I've spent wanting to be someone else or be some other version of myself or be further along. And that living in the future 
means you miss out on some aspects of the moment. So I would tell my younger self to just have more fun and you know, it all kind of works itself out. Learn to enjoy every moment that you're in and life will be awesome. I ask that question to everybody I talk to and not once has somebody said, you know, buy Apple stock in 1981. <laughs> it is mostly, yeah. hey, worry less. Yeah. Have, have more fun in life, live in the moment more. And we see this in like, you know, in our, in our hindsight, we see that, hey, maybe I shouldn't have been so worried about fill in the blank, getting that A in college or whatever it is, protecting my GPA. I see this with my kids right now. I have three in college. Oh, wow. And my daughter is just, she's so like, she's like, I need to keep my 4.0. I'm like, Maggie, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You know, if you get a B, the world's not going to end. But You will still be employable. You will still find your path in life. It's okay. It's true. It's true. Well, I've been talking to Karen Manja about her career, about her books. And I'm sure there are some people out here wondering, hey, where can we learn more about Karen Manja? So do you have any social media or website you'd like to plug? I do. I am on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And my website is readsuccessfromanywhere.com. That's a great URL. Thank you. It's a good one to capture. Well, I am Mike Carlin. This has been Uncorking a Story. You can find me anywhere on social media at Uncorking a Story. And I'm going to tell you that coming up on the Purple Stage next is Real Talk, the Consumer Inside Show, presents Inside Lead Product Development. Don't miss that. It's going to be fun. All right, Karen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.